1: It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you so much for being with us. We have a terrific panel of journalists uh, to uh, run down the uh, top political news of the day. So let me get right to introducing them. It's Wednesday, which means my partner on the show from the AJC is Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the AJC and analyst for uh, NBC across all of its digital platforms. How are you, Greg?
2: I'm doing great. I'm in a new room this morning. We cleaned out my kids' playroom to make it a second um, room that I can podcast in and all that without the dog barking in the background.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much for that. Um, hey, by the real quickly, uh, your, your book uh, is going to be published formally on March 22nd, Flipped, which tells the story of the uh, 2020 elections, which uh, – turn the corner for Democrats trying to win back some power in Georgia. And uh, we should point out, you and I are doing an event at the Atlanta Jewish Book Festival that uh, people can get tickets to see, right?
2: Yeah, it's available online, and the event is March 24th, Thursday, March 24th. And uh, it's part of their famed book circuit. So it'll be real fun to sort of debut the book in Atlanta together.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, that event with you. Stephen Fowler is with us. Stephen Fowler is, of course, political reporter for uh, GPB News. Stephen is also doing a lot of reporting for NPR and has been uh, certainly since the 2020 elections. And Stephen, you're joining us just back from vacation. So thank you for being willing to make a quick turn and be with us uh, on your first day back at work.
3: Political Rewind is no Bahamas, but it's a very close second.
1: All right, Thank you so much for being here. And joining us from her car, close to the, the uh, courthouse in Brunswick, Georgia, uh, Margaret Coker, editor-in-chief of The Current, the nonprofit uh, uh, news organization uh, that you can uh, uh, go to by going to thecurrentga.org to get news uh, uh, from the Georgia coast although they covered the state pretty broadly as well. Margaret, you, will you be in the courtroom today?
0: Yeah, I've been going in and out of the courtroom since jury selection, and unlike the state trial, of course, it's not being televised. Federal court rules are much different. So um, basically we have in-person, um, in-person close-up views about what's going on inside.
1: We look forward to hearing uh, your observations about what happened as uh, witnesses began testifying in the trial uh, yesterday. And we're joined by Stanley Dunlap, a uh, reporter for Georgia Recorder. Stanley, you uh, told us that um, before the show started, you're going to do the show and then you're heading down to the Capitol. You've been covering the legislature, right?
4: Yeah, certainly we're in the uh, kind of the heat of things with the legislature and and kind of interesting bills dropping that, Some were expected and some kind of come out of the blue, such as the Governor Kemp's mask mandate that kind of the announcement came late last week and the following came this week. And so we'll be following today with the committee meetings and they'll pick back up with the uh, floor session tomorrow.
1: Well, thank you, too, for uh, being here today. Uh, Greg, let's start with what I think is the top political story uh, in the news right now, which is that uh, after more than a year uh, since uh, uh, Steve Wrigley announced he was going to uh, retire as chancellor of the University System of Georgia. There has been a temporary chancellor in place. A search was uh, apparently underway. But we've known from the start that Sonny Purdue was interested in that job. He said as much himself. Um, it was a controversial uh, 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 process, uh, to to p- bring him to the to the uh, f- first spot I- as a finalist in that whole thing and for months and months the whole thing was kind of quiet because uh, I-, I think there was concern about getting him positioned for the job now it's his yes
2: yeah we first reported yeah you're right about a year ago in March that that Sonny Purdue was a likely contender for this job but it took a, an enormous amount of political capital from governor Kemp to position Sonny Purdue um, to become the chancellor. Of course, the governor cannot appoint the chancellor himself. He appoints the members of the Board of Regents who do the appointing. But these are long terms. These are six-, seven-year terms. Um, and many of the appointees on the Board of Regents were from his predecessors. Some were even from Sunny Perdue, uh, but mostly from, from Nathan Deal. So over the last year, the governor has overhauled the Board of Regents. He's removed some opponents of Sunny Perdue's. Um, he's positioned Sunny Purdue. Um, to get this vote. I was told in, around last summer that Sonny Perdue, by several reasons that Sunny Purdue did not have the vote, or it was going to be exceedingly close. But the vote yesterday was unanimous. He is the sole finalist, and there's basically going to be one other rub, rubber stamp vote uh, in a couple weeks uh, to formally appoint him. But the former governor and the former agriculture secretary will be the next head of the higher education system in Georgia, one of the most powerful jobs in the state.
1: Uh, Stephen, it was very controversial for a time. Being there are any number of student groups that opposed Purdue. Uh, they said because he had no academic background whatsoever. Uh, there were also some concerns about his conservative political uh, ideology um, that was were expressed in the protests. Um, and for a time, one of the major uh, accreditation uh, organizations. The uh, was, was suggesting the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools Commission on Colleges said that perhaps they would take away the accreditation of the university system schools if uh, Purdue were appointed to the job. So this has been a rocky road to get to this point, Stephen.
3: Right. I mean, like you said, it's one of the most important positions in state government. And there's a lot of people in the higher education community that want there to be a little bit more transparency with the process and a little bit more consideration. I mean, the sole finalist, uh, we don't know who else was interviewed at this point. We don't know the things. I know the American Association of University Professors uh, have been vocal about their opposition to the way this process has been conducted. I think there was a thread from a professor, a University of North Georgia professor I read yesterday, where he went through the outlines of the job descriptions of Chancellor and said, Sonny Perdue barely met half of them and questioned the process. So uh, everything is political, and especially within this election season, there's a lot of politics to consider. But, uh, yeah, for the last 13 months, this has been uh, a rising tide of concern from some in the higher education field.
1: Uh, Margaret, we should say that um, an article in Inside Higher Ed, which is a a journal about higher education and a pretty uh, respectable one, uh, quotes the uh, head of the accreditation agency that had expressed concerns about Purdue as saying now she is satisfied that the university's uh, board of regents went through the process appropriately and they are no longer concerned about accreditation Uh, So at least that's one uh, strike in uh, in favor of Sonny Perdue for the time being, Margaret.
0: Yeah, that that of course is is the great um, was the great unknown outside of the political realm, but you know for for parents, for hardworking Georgians who are trying to get their kids to a good school, if you end up with your kids at UGA and any of the state campuses, and suddenly accreditations in doubt, it means that not only is your money gone to waste, but your kids' academic futures and professional futures are also in doubt. You know, I'm I'm pretty struck by by. Um, you know, the way in which that politics and the um, overarching that in Georgia, um, the politics of race and racism and racial equity are also intertwined with all of this. You know, UGA has lost its accreditation in, you know, what we consider the darker chapters of, of Georgia history in 1941 and 1961, when segregation and desegregation were, were, were happening in other places and UGA's regents were at the time, um, you know, really walking very slowly towards towards that ultimate goal and and the, that ultimate outcome, and of course. You can't really separate this this push um, despite Governor Kemp's personal political, um, you know, uh, calculations about how to become governor again. That's intertwined with, with this decision with Sonny Perdue to become chancellor. But the politics of race in Georgia are also part of this, right? When when Perdue says he wants to install a re, reassert uh, conservative Georgia values into the state uh, system, when there's also this parallel debate about about how to teach racism and institutional racism in, in our country, I think that I think it's all, um, I think it's all really damaging for, for kids who are just trying to get a good education right now.
1: Um, in fact, uh, Stanley, Uh, early on the few comments that Sonny Perdue has made public about his interest in this job. He did say he wanted to uh, help restore some conservative values to the universities in the state. And then just yesterday uh, in defending uh uh, purdue as the finalist for the job our friend brian robinson a republican consultant uh said that he was glad that sonny purdue was going to take on the job because he too would give voice to the conservatives on university campuses who are not being heard so there are some people concerned about how much of a political point of view purdue will bring to the job and one last thing stanley and then you weigh in in a statement from the american association of university professors They said that they were concerned because while he was secretary of agriculture, uh, Purdue buried publicly funded peer-reviewed research showing the dangers of climate change to agriculture and public health, uh, and that uh, he had expressed uh, skepticism about climate change despite worldwide scientific consensus. Those are the words of the um, Association of University uh, Professor, so Margaret's right, Stanley, to mention the political aspects of this. All
4: right, and, and we're just seeing this play out. Kind of in higher education, this is trickling down clearly to K through 12 public schools with legislation that would uh, ban the teaching of divisive concepts. We've seen the uh, the idea of giving parents the right to to uh, voice their concerns about the school curriculum, try to ban books, and all of it is. Uh, a lot of this is tied to the idea that the um, public schools have become too liberal. They're teaching, you know, um, ideologies that don't coincide with what for much of Georgia's history have been taught. And so um, I think what you're seeing with the, uh, the Sunny Purdue, you know, soon to be appointment is that they're trying to you know, take that same concept with higher education and, and, and then, follow through with K-12 and kind of have a system where all the public education kind of follows the same uh, standards and you kind of stamp down a lot of these, these concepts that they, they consider divisive.
1: You, Greg, I want to I tie this into another event this week that came out of Governor Kemp's office. So on uh, one hand, we know that Governor Kemp put in place regents who would end up voting for his choice for Chancellor Sonny Perdue. This week, uh, the governor made another uh, decision about an appointment that uh, people are now uh, a little bit concerned about. He named Andrew Pinson, who is um, a a judge in uh, the uh, Circuit Division of the state of Georgia, to be uh, uh, the new justice on the state Supreme Court David Namius has said he's going to retire in uh, the summertime. And, um, and, and the governor did this quickly after Namius made his um, surprise announcement he was retiring without going through the Judicial Nominating Commission, without uh, re- you know, calling in other possible candidates for the job. Um, we know that Pinson is a conservative judge. He clerked for Clarence Thomas. All of which goes to my question about, are we seeing a pretty uh, strong exercise in raw power by Governor Kemp yeah. around the sunny Purdue and around the Andrew Pinson appointment?
2: Yeah, the governor's not afraid to flex his muscles right now to show his conservative credentials. And you're exactly right. Um, to say that the legal world was a fire over Pinson's appointment earlier this week is an understatement I heard <sighs> from judges and lawyers and legal experts all, all over the place, um, privately, who were kind of astounded um, that by the speed of this pick. So much so that Justice, Chief Justice David Namias, whose retirement opened this vacancy, called me yesterday to make it clear that there was no deal that he cut with Governor Kemp. He was saying that you know, he had no role in, in the appointment. He, he respects Andrew Pinson, but had nothing to do with, um, with that selection process still, the fact that the governor picked a 35-year-old protege of Clarence Thomas um, within days of learning of Justice Nanias' retirement without going through that conventional process that usually takes weeks, interviewing and vetting candidates, uh, means that he is, he is exerting his will on all branches of, of, of state government. I'll say this, too. The, um, the, the governor's office kind of pushes back saying, hey, Andrew Pinson had already gone through that process earlier because he was on the short list another Supreme Court vacancy, so it's not like he was unknown to the governor. In fact, um, if there is any lawyer outside the governor's office who is closer to the administration, it, it's, it's probably Andrew Pinson. He is very closely tied to Governor Kemp. Governor Kemp knows him really well. But all that said, it still was surprising and really stunning to a lot of folks in the legal world.
3: So the, uh, there, there's two different ways of looking at this. One, uh, Brian Kemp is facing a tough primary challenge from David Perdue, Sonny Perdue's cousin. And so in a way, a lot of these things that the governor's done from Andrew Penson to naming Sonny Perdue to coming out strong with things like uh, the Unmasked Our Kids and uh, Parents' Bill of Rights and things like that, Is Kemp really flexing his muscle right before a primary to show that this is the type of conservative governor he has been and will continue to be if people continue to vote for him over the Trump-backed primary challenger? Another way of looking at it, too, is that if Democrats were to win the governor's race or lieutenant governor's race or some of the other elections in November, a lot of the decisions and things Kemp are making now can't be reversed on day one of a Stacey Mm. Abrams administration. (laughs) So there might be the tide turning slightly for Democrats if they were to win in November. But things like the chancellor and the Supreme Court and things like that can't be undone and kind of continues to cement conservative power at the top of the state of Georgia, even if nominally there's a Democrat in charge.
1: Margaret.
0: So just to um, try to re uh, reframe the the. issue a little bit, um, Clarence Thomas, proud son of Savannah, um, more specifically proud son of Pinpoint, the Gullah Geechee community just south of Savannah, he is an incredible American legal mind. And you might not agree with his personal political values, but he is an amazing um, legal scholar. Anyone who clerked under him will also uh, be obviously, I think, well um, well trained and and also incredibly uh, incredibly qualified to take on the job, um, the, the, the backroom deals and the, uh, the lack of, of um, you know, procedures that, that have been uh, apparently used in order to, to get this appointment um, is, is one thing. But let's not forget um, the man who may be the next uh, Supreme Court uh, um, um, president um, in the state of Georgia is someone who's incredibly qualified to, to be there.
1: All right. Thank you for that. Margaret, while the ball's in your court, um, you're down there at the uh, trial of the three men uh, convicted of murdering Ahmaud Arbery. The witnesses began testifying yesterday. Um, Tell us what stood out for you in testimony yesterday. And I know, Stanley, you filed on the first day of testimony as well. So let me start with you, Margaret, and then Stanley pick up on 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 this uh, subject.
0: Yeah, so there is a three-person prosecution team. Um, one of the prosecutors is from the Southern District of Georgia and you know, lives in Georgia. The other two come from the, the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division um, out of D.C., and they are you know, sort of uh, honed and, and concentrated on hate crimes and civil rights uh, violations um, as, as their own. Um, uh, and they're, they're top experts in that. So they've, of course, started the trial. They have called up witnesses that they uh, believe are going to help set the set the platform and, and the basis to, to show that the three defendants, Greg and Travis McMichael and Roddy Bryan, are not just murderers, but they're actually racist murderers. And trying to get over that bar of showing that, Racial animus and racial hate was was uh, the main motivation for the violence that they caused um, in killing Arbery is is the legal hurdle that, that they're trying to um, to get over. Right now, it's early days, right? We have, um, we've we've heard from uh, former neighbors in, in Satilla Shores, this majority white neighborhood um, outside of Brunswick in Glen County. And right now, um, this morning, we're hearing from FBI experts in terrorism and extremism. And so they're also trying to build this, um, you know, build this foundation of why, um how what extremism looks like in America and how it presents itself?
1: Stanley, you were writing about the trial for a Georgia recorder yesterday
4: correct and and um, kind of building on what what Margaret is saying, that it's uh, the challenge now is kind of your, compared to the state case where it was more factually based of you know they uh, they committed this this crime, and here's how it played out. We're kind of now having to read into what, you know, had a, a Georgia Southern professor say they're having to read into the intentions and kind of the hearts and minds of the defendants in this case. And so it's not as simple as saying that clearly they've, they've made derogatory and racist statements in the past. And that's going to probably we'll hear more about that um, today in court. But it's not as clearly as just saying that they've made these statements in the past. You have to show the connection between what played out um, leading up to them. Uh, chasing after uh, Ahmaud Arbery, which then of course resulted in his death. And so we heard the, one of the defense attorneys make the statement, an um, in, in opening statement that, you know, we don't even have to like our clients and we're not even saying that they haven't said racist things, but we're we're set to prove that their intentions that day weren't connected to Arbery being black. And, and clearly the the prosecution is pretty hammered down pretty early on that, you know, we, we believe that, you know, the statements that they have made in the past and will we'll show that there was, that that, that factor was um, a, a, at least a predominant or, or key, key factor in them, you know, going after Arbery instead of some of the other people who were seen around that same unoccupied home um, in the month leading up to the uh, shooting.
1: Um, Greg, I was moved by uh, the testimony of the first prosecution witness, a man named Dan Alcott, who lives across the street from the scene of the murder and who heard the the gunshots, wasn't sure what they were at first. Um, The three gunshots that killed Arbery came out of the house, witnessed the whole scene, um, and and he gave very emotional testimony, concluding by saying he, he had to move. Uh, because it no longer felt like his house. At one point, he said uh, Arbery's uh, mother, Wanda Cooper-Jones, and I think maybe the father, too, came to his door and asked if they could put a, a memorial of some sort on the lawn of the house, and Alcott said, of course. Um, I can't even imagine he told the jury yesterday what it was like to lose a child. Very, this is, there's going to be some rough language, raw language, and a lot of emotion in this trial, Greg.
2: Yeah, really fraught testimony for a community that's already gone through this once already. And I'm curious to hear from Margaret because she's sitting outside the courtroom right now. What's it been like for the community? What's it been like for people, residents of coastal Georgia to have the sort of national media to on them all over again?
0: Yeah. So there's there's actually very few media here for this trial, in large part because, according to federal court rules, there is no um, TV cameras and no photography allowed, and so that takes out a lot of the um, a lot of the impetus for um, 24-hour media coverage. As you know, Greg, if there's not um, if there's not strong pictures. Um, usually, TV folks um, decide that there's another story better, better worth their time. so it's it's pretty quiet in Brunswick, you know, quite frankly, it, it, it's it, this is a working class town, right? And if people are lucky enough to have a job, they're going to work every day and they're not um, they're not standing outside the courtroom. Um in the state case, uh, the murder trial, of course the the county courthouse here um, it 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 opens up into an incredibly beautiful grassy square where there was a lot of room for demonstrations and prayer vigils, and there was space for people to commune and, and sort of console each other um, during the the very emotional testimony. Um, the federal courthouse in Brunswick is right off of the main commercial street. It has been blocked off by concrete barriers there's really no room for anyone to congregate even if they um, if they want to. Uh, you know, we're coming up on, on the two year anniversary of, of uh, Ahmad Arbery's murder. That's going to be February 23rd. And I think the community um, in those days leading up to, to that anniversary are, are going to come out in force. But um, in force, I mean, in the spirit of, of sort of mourning, but also reconciliation. Because one thing about the convictions in the state murder trial showed is that there's an enormous amount of people in Glen County. Who feel like uh, you know they don't they don't want to be known as as um, as as the place in America where where racial reckoning um, still is is underway. They'd like to be able to heal the wounds that, that they everybody feels, whether you're white or black, about this violence having taken place in their own backyard. And you know there's a new um, there's a new police chief in in Glen County who's really trying to make a, a better mark uh, for society here as well with. Um, he's undergoing, um, he and his team and the community are doing implicit bias training. So there's steps moving in the right direction to help Glen County as a whole outside of the courthouse right now.
1: Um, Stephen, before we get to a break, it is worth reiterating that uh, it might be possible to show that these three defendants are, in fact, uh, raci- racist. Um, but to, tie the, to, make, to make it clear to the jury that their racism led to the murders is a much higher bar that they have to cross. Right, Stephen?
3: Right. I mean, like Stanley was saying, you know, the, the first trial was all about facts and rule of law. And this is a lot more about feelings. And that's why you're hearing uh, the prosecution open up and talk about the racial slurs and other things that people said. And why you heard the defense say, yes, these were bad things. we said bad things. My clients have said bad things. But that doesn't have anything to do with what they did today. I mean, nobody uh, on both sides of the case here, everyone is saying that these slurs were bad. They've said and done bad things in the past. But the key point here is, did all of those past actions influence the murder of Ahmaud Arbery? And that's going to be something difficult for both sides to prove over this next week or so.
1: All right. Um, let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show, and we, co- when we come back, we'll have a lot more with our panel. G.P.B. Stephen Fowler, the Georgia Recorder, Stanley Dunlap, editor in chief, of The Current, Margaret Coker, and Greg Bluestein joined me for today's show. Uh, all right. So, Greg Bluestein. Yesterday, a pretty remarkable thing happened on the floor of the Georgia House of Representatives. Democratic State Representative Dave Wilkerson of Powder Springs, who's been a panelist on this show a number of times, uh, took to the well, made an impassioned speech opposing a Republican-led override of local uh, redistricting maps, and said, I'm going to be honest with you, this S-blank-T sucks, uh, breaking all decorum, but showing just how angry he and so many other Democrats are about what's happening with uh, Republican efforts uh, successful so far to redraw government lines in Cobb County, Gwinnett County, uh, school board lines. Tell us, Just help us understand what's going on here, Greg.
2: Yeah, tempers are flaring over these local redistricting maps. It's because the Republican majority in the state legislature is overriding local delegations in these, these areas where Democrats recently uh, took control of power. It's not just happening in Cobb County. It's happening in Gwinnett County. It's happening in Augusta, Richmond. And to another degree, it's sort of a different scenario, but it's also happening in Athens where Republicans have control of the local mm-hmm. legislature, legislature, but Democrats are the overwhelming majority within the county. And so um, lawmakers are, are getting upset. Uh, this was the second time David Wilkerson, who is the House Majority Whip, he's one of the sorry House Minority Whip, he's one of the leading Democrats in the state legislature. Um, it's the second time he was sort of at the center of, 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 um, of just a venting of frustration. Um, just a few days ago in a House Committee meeting, um, he uh, he was threatened with uh, by the chairwoman of being called the poli- of having the police come out to uh, to escort him out of the room. That didn't end up happening. Um, but tempers are really hot right now, and it's not just Democrats. Uh, we talked earlier on the show mm. a couple days ago about Dominant Luricchia. He's a southwest Georgia Republican who literally flipped the bird at, uh, in the middle of an official House portrait to vent his anger at House leadership, in part because he was drawn into the same district as a fellow Republican, which meant he was going to pretty much have to either challenge him or leave office. He's leaving office. so. It's really hot right now under the Gold Dome, and this local redistricting has emerged as one of the most fiery issues in a way that it, we I don't think many people expect it. Congressional maps, Ste- you know, state legislative maps, those have gotten a lot of attention, but these local maps, usually it's the local delegations, that get to have the final say on these.
1: Stephen, I think that last point is really what we want to emphasize here. Typically, traditionally, the way it works is if you are trying to draw lines in Cobb County, as an example, Gwinnett County, Um, it is the local delegation from that county which decides on what those lines will be. They make an agreement, then they take it to the whole body for uh, a vote uh, to uh, confirm what the local delegation has done. But where you have Democrats in control of these local delegations, instead of letting them do that— The Republican-led legislature, House in this case, is taking over the process and drawing the lines that the local delegations don't have now uh, control to do themselves.
3: Right. I mean, it goes back to what I said earlier about entrenching power beyond what is actually probably afforded to you. There hasn't really been a good explanation from anyone in this process about why the different versions of these bills that bypass normal local committee procedures, that bypass the local legislative majority, are going through other than uh, we have control of the chamber, we make the rules, that's what we're doing. I mean, could you imagine what it would be like if you had Democrats in control and lawmakers in Fulton and DeKalb County redrawing the Lowndes County Commission District the way they wanted to just because they felt like it, because they were in control? It's ridiculous. It's something that doesn't really it doesn't pass the smell test regardless of your party identification because you know your community best and these lawmakers that are elected know the community best. And so to have a minority come in and redraw things might be something that ends up backfiring because, you know, these counties that are being targeted the most are the ones that are changing politically and demographically the most. And I think come November of this year and in future years voters will remember that their district that they lived in most of their life has changed
1: to satisfy the minority power and might vote accordingly. I think that's a really interesting uh, uh, question, as a matter of fact, Stephen. I, it, you know, Margaret, i am uh, been around long enough to remember when Governor Barnes, the last Democratic governor of the state uh, before Republicans took over, uh, drew a h- incredibly gerrymandered map uh, which gave Democrats uh, power over the entire state in a way they hadn't had it for uh, uh, generations. And he paid a price for it uh, in the election. I mean, there were any number of factors that led to Roy Barnes not winning re-election, but uh, the, changing the flag, certainly the biggest one. But people resented... That exercise of raw power and it did hurt uh, Roy Barnes. And the question is, will it do the same to some of the Republicans who are uh, d- using these same tactics to get their will in local districts?
0: Yeah. In recent years, we've seen you know some of the most of of the the ground rules of how politics is played both in Georgia and nationwide. You know, those rules have been broken. There has been a lot of boundary bending and, Mm. and, you know, pushing of, of, of normal rules of etiquette. And there used to be this fear of consequences, right, not just of, you know, that kind of shame about how far you're going to push the boundaries, but the consequences of your actions. And some of that was, was very much um, immediate. You know, if you need somebody's vote to help get a bill passed, you had to do something in return. There's all of this give and take that comes out into a, a very uh, venerable um, atmosphere of how politics is conducted. When that's all blown up, what you have left is the voters. The voters have to keep their elected officials in check. And um, woe be to the elected official who doesn't remember um, that voters are actually the people who put them in power. And voters of all sorts, not just the people who, who belong to your base, um, are going to come out um, in November. And, and um, that might be the consequence that, that uh, is, not, is not immediately appreciated right now um, under the Gold Dome.
1: Stanley?
4: I think you know, a couple of uh, interesting points. One, when you're we mentioning that, you know, we, we knew going in that congressional district maps would get a lot of the attention and um, anybody who who knows about local politics knows the importance of kind of what happens at your local level with boards and commissions and how they're drawn up or, or who, who you know, the members are comprised of that, the importance of that, uh, those decisions that are made. And so this is, you know, really the reason that we're seeing such kind of tensions flare up because obvious significance of, of what, how these uh, lines are going to be drawn, but, um, um, also kind of the point of local control. We hear, you know, for a lot of, uh, uh of Republicans that, you know, keep the government out of our business or, you know, local people should kind of determine what's best for them. But, um, I think it, we know that that it kind of depends on what the issue is and that, <laughs> that you will decide that we know better from the state level of of who should be in control or how things should, should matter when we think it's best versus like given the actual people within the district uh, decision-making power.
1: Thank you, Stanley. All right, let's, uh, let's stick with redistricting, Uh, 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 stories about redistricting for a couple of minutes, Greg. Um, U S district judge Steve Jones right now is hearing a case about the redrawing of Georgia's congressional lines, The plaintiffs in that case uh, say that uh, the new lines uh, underrepresent black voters, that it denies them an opportunity to pick up a seat in Congress, even though there has been a growth of some 500,000 African-Americans in the state of Georgia since the last census. So Jones has been hearing this case and trying to decide whether the evidence supports needing to draw new lines uh, in the Georgia congressional map. Meanwhile, the U.S. Supreme Court denies a, 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 a lower court in Alabama's order that the Alabama lines need to be redrawn because they have that same problem uh, that they deny black voting strength. And the U.S. Supreme Court says, no, no, you can't do it. It's too close to the next election. And that in, in Alabama is, this, I think, May, just as it is in Georgia. So now Steve Jones is, has a dilemma. If he thinks the plaintiffs are right, does he in fact move the date of Georgia's primary election, an election that's already going to be confused in so many ways because of the the yeah. lines that had existed? I mean, this is a really troubling kind of case to have to look at if you're Steve Jones.
2: Yeah, thorny to say the least, and he could he could rule as soon as next week. Um, they just wrapped up six days of court hearings. Earlier this week, but yeah, he's got two major decisions as you mentioned. He he has to decide whether or not the new political maps discriminate against black voters, Uh, even as black voting power has grown by about well, the population has grown by nearly five hundred thousand over the last decade. uh, Four of the Georgia's fourteen congressional districts have a majority non-white voters. That that is the same as before redistricting, but also whether or not to delay the May twenty-fourth primary to maybe as late as July to give local elections officials and voters time to sort of comprehend the changes, Um, that could push back a runoff until August. So we're talking about significant changes um, up and down the ballot that will reshape Georgia's election season.
1: Stephen,
3: So there's a lot of different moving parts and pieces to consider beyond just redrawing the maps because the local elections officials are the ones that actually have to put that into practice. They have to... Mm -hmm redraw all of the boundaries and reassign every voter to their correct uh, congressional seat, state house, state senate, all the way down to local school boards and things like that. And that takes a lot of time and effort to do. Then you have to notify all the voters of where all the different changes are. And then you have to do things like build the ballot to make sure that uh, whoever's qualified for the seat is on the ballot in the right way. And if some of the lines are changing, uh, people may be running for different races. So, It's a multi-month, multi-step process from the election official end that has to be done to ensure that an election is run on the right maps, whatever those maps may be. And so there was testimony last week from local elections officials saying that there's no way if you redrew maps, we could get it all done in time for May 24th. So it's entirely possible that the primary could be delayed, but also it's possible that the primary could be delayed and still be run under the maps that have already been drawn because of the time it would take to change things. So it's uh, changing a primary is not unprecedented in Georgia. In 2020, the primary was delayed because of COVID concerns. But uh, regardless, it's going to be a really, really hairy situation for voters, local elections officials, and candidates, regardless of the ruling.
1: Um, Wait, I need you to explain something. If the judge decides that the map, if, if he thinks that the plaintiffs have not made their case and the map is legal, why wouldn't the primary proceed on May twenty fourth as planned?
3: Oh well, that that is an option. So basically, the options are: the maps stay the same, the primary stays the same; the maps gotcha. stay the okay. same, the primary is delayed, or the maps change and the primary <laughs> delay. So, you know, th- uh, there's no red string on the radio, but it's
1: it's, it's I, happening. I, I, yeah, I I'm sorry. We need to be on TV to show all of this on some kind of chart. But thank you for walking us through that, uh, Stephen. Stanley, the Republicans in the legislature and the lawyers who represent them are convinced that their maps will will meet legal muster that they have drawn perfectly fine maps. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah,
4: and I don't I think it yeah, would be interesting if they had the opposite stance of, well, <laughs> we're completely gerrymandered and these lap maps won't hold up in court. So, of course, they're going to kind of make that argument. It'll be kind of up to the courts to decide. And interesting of note that the dynamics of kind of moving back the election, we saw that play out a couple of years ago due to the pandemic, where the primary was moved back a couple of times. And so, um, there's some. You know complications that could come from that but there there is at least some precedent in having to push back uh, the the primaries
1: well but margaret let me just amplify uh, what i was saying david ralston has been very proud ever since the 2010 redrawing of the maps that those maps passed legal muster and he has said you know we're confident that the maps we passed this time are just as completely legal as those maps that we passed back after the 2010 uh, uh, session. And and that's something that he still talks about, as I said, with pride. He's done it on our show on a number of occasions, Margaret.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's it's I think easy sometimes for journalists to uh, assume uh, bad intentions by by political actors. But David Ralston is, is um, you know, repeatedly says that they have nothing but good intentions. You know, they again, there, there is the spirit of the law, the letter of the law, all of the gray areas in between, but. Um but, yeah, we, we, um, we're, we're going to have to wait and see exactly how, how the judge rules on this. And in the meantime, I think we should all say um, a prayer and keep uh, good thoughts um, in our heads for our county election <laughs> officials, because they really are, you know, the, the sinew and the tendons that keep our democracy moving. As everyone flexes their muscles in Atlanta, um, these people who are, are dedicated public servants, Actually, um, actually, are, are, are what we need in order to have free, fair, and trustworthy elections.
1: Absolutely. Greg, let me give you the last word on all this before the break.
2: Yeah, something else that David Ralston said was there are consequences to elections. So he is saying basically mm-hmm. the legislature has the right to impose its will even if the local delegation opposes it.
1: All right. Greg Bluestein, thank you for uh, that closing comment in the second segment of Political Rewind. We'll be back with more in just a moment by the way the newest edition of the political rewind newsletter is out later today if you're not a subscriber and you want to get it in your inbox just go to gpb.org newsletters and you can sign up right there and while we're promoting gpb Stephen Fowler, uh you're just back from vacation but do you know yet what your next edition of battleground ballot box your podcast is going to be about
3: Today's podcast is about the importance of local county election boards and what they do and how there they make go. it all work.
1: <laughs> there you go. Thank you for that. Hey, Stanley Dunlap, um, you uh, filed a story the other day that, that was covered broadly by by the AJC, by, by GPB as well, but you can start us off on this. Um, the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, is saying that he needs uh, state law enforcement agencies to, to staff with officers... Holding places, early voting locations, county election offices where they're gathering absentee uh, ballots because he's worried about ballot security. I think there's something like 2,000 venues across the state that uh, would f- have to have some sort of law enforcement uh, presence. The whole premise is, according to Raffensperger, we've got to make sure these elections are safe and secure. Stanley? Yeah, and I
4: think that's probably... a. Uh, uh, signed from Raffensperger to say if we have, you know, state troopers who we specifically mentioned, it's kind of having the highest respect that um, if they're there guarding one, you you know, maybe potentially for any situations that could could arise to the intimidation that um, they're there to protect against that. But also I think you've hit the point of security of ballots, uh, <laughs> that if they're there, they can kind of keep track of, you know, how the ballots are moving from, you know, from the polling stations to the warehouses or whatever locations they're going to the county election offices. And so I think that's just a side of I'm trying to put something out there to kind of force the hand to see how the governor or other leaders react to that. Because it's a pretty extensive drain on resources to think that not just during the election day, but when you're talking about during the early, early voting period and also – potentially when votes are being counted in the days after the election that that's pretty intensive to think that when you already have local sheriffs that are available that can do that to also have
1: state agencies involved with that. Greg, um, I, I didn't attend the news conference. At, you could imagine that a Raffensperger might lead a news conference like that by saying, we're worried about the th- many threats that suddenly election workers are facing in, across Georgia and other states as well, and we need law enforcement protection. But that's not what he said this is about. He talked about it being a matter of voters, of, of the security of the ballot, to guard against a fraud in some ways, Yes.
2: Yeah, in his words, election integrity, and that shows you the political bind he's in. He's facing a Trump-backed challenger, Jody Heiss, who's expected to either make the runoff or even beat Brad Raffensperger outright, and he's also focusing his fire on Democrats. He's trying to energize Republicans by, by, uh, by attacking Stacey Abrams, by attacking Clarified, her, her political organization. Um, and he led the news conference with also an endorsement of um, allowing GBI, allowing the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, Uh, more investigative powers to open their own cases against um, cases of alleged election fraud. So it speaks to the bind he's in. Also, his plan, you know, he has very little clout, if any, in the state legislature right now, and law enforcement officers are already stretched thin. Um, But it did speak to at least highlighted the ongoing concerns about security that elections officials have. We don't have to go back too far in our memory banks to remember all the threats against not just Raffensburg and his office, but county and local elections officials all over, all over the state in the last election cycle. Very scary stuff.
1: And, Margaret, that speaks to what you just told us a minute ago, which is that we ought to remember how much respect we owe to the people who staff election offices, not just the staff, but the volunteers who come in on election days. And, um, and, and so add to that.
0: Yeah. You know, I, where, where I live in Georgia, you know, these, these election officials, these county officials and volunteers – they're they're not in it uh, for the money. Um, they're not in it for some uh, 15 minutes of fame and celebrity. They're in it because they um, they are proud Georgians and proud Americans and believe it is a, a revered civic duty to help help uh, help elections go smoothly. And it's it's um, nobody wants to become uh, to become a. a um, you'll go to work feeling anxiety and, and stress because you might be targeted by trolls online or by um, rabid fans of one party or another um, outside of your, your workplace. And, and I don't see that happening here in coastal Georgia, but, you know, never say never. Um, it was uh, the Trump campaign's first, um, first uh, lawsuit that was filed in in the 2020 elections was in Chatham County, um, around Savannah. And so uh, I don't think that any part of our state is free from, um, from this hysteria that's being whipped up about whether or not we can trust our elections in Georgia or not.
1: Okay. Um, Last subject. Greg Bluestein. we're used to hearing, say, Marjorie Taylor Greene make odious comparisons to our, uh, you know, between our democracy right now and Nazi Germany. I mean, that's something that's become sort of a trademark of hers. But you sent out a tweet yesterday that caught our attention. You pointed out that David Perdue on uh, Diamond and Silk, the 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 show done by uh, two African-American women who are devoted supporters and and became famous during Trump's rise to power, that on that show, Purdue said that um, if you start banning people, if you can ban Donald Trump from Twitter, then you're creating a situation like Germany in 1933, Russia in 1919, Cuba in 1958, whatever. I mean, it... David Perdue was, started life as a, as a corporate leader and sort of a mainstream politician. To make comparisons to Germany in 1933 seems to have tipped him uh, in a whole new direction.
2: Yeah, we've heard, we've heard the former senator draw parallels between creeping socialism, right? He, he's used the Venezuela uh, example a lot. But I've never heard him before say, oh, because Donald Trump was banned from Twitter— this is the start of something like the brown shirts to the Nazis coming in, in 1933. Uh, and that, that raised a lot of concerns, especially among Jewish um, critics and, and Jewish leaders um, who, who said, basically have been saying for years now, stop comparing um, anything to the to Holocaust. Stop comparing political actions or things that, uh, that you oppose to creeping Nazism, because it's just, there is just no comparison, as you all know.
1: Um, a corollary to that is is this news, uh, and I'm reading from the AJC story. A Georgia Senate panel Tuesday passed a bill that would allow people to sue social media companies if their posts are removed or altered because of the views they express. It's Senate Bill 393. Critics say the bill would make it harder for social media companies to police harmful content such as bullying, racism, hate speech, and the like. Uh, but, Greg... Uh, we'll see how far that bill is likely to get in the uh, legislature.
2: Yeah, a lot of opposition, but also um, speaks to the cancel culture that a lot of white conservatives feel like they're facing right now.
1: Okay, we're going to talk a little bit more about that bill. We, we don't have time for it today, but, it, but it's important that we address it uh, uh, tomorrow. Also, a subject that we've kept wanting to get to and haven't is where is Rivian? right now. Uh, Governor Kemp trumpeted being able to bring the Rivian assembly plant to Georgia for many good reasons. 8,000 employees, uh, a, a, a one of the most highly rated electric vehicle manufacturers in the country. But the Wall Street Journal and other publications are now saying that Rivian, if they don't start delivering on their trucks, on their SUVs, uh, they could be in severe trouble. We're going to talk a little bit more about what that means in terms of Governor Kemp's future and what it means to the people of that part of Georgia where the plant is going to be built out there uh, in Rutledge. We're out of time for today. My thanks to Stanley Dunlap, Dunlap, Margaret Coker, Stephen Fowler, and Greg Bluestein. We're back again with another edition of Political Rewind tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Please stay healthy. Bye-bye.